navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the March episode of the Datascape Cloud Update Podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the latest announcements from the leading public cloud vendors with industry experts. I'm going to go ahead and introduce some of those experts right now. Today, I am joined with Pierre Glisseau, who will be discussing AWS. Hey, Pierre, how are you doing? Hey, hi, Chris. Uh, very well. How about yourself? Doing great, thank you, and thanks for coming back to the show. Also joining us is Warner Chavez, who is going to discuss Azure. Hey, Warner, welcome. Hey, how are you, Chris? Good to be back here to discuss the cloud landscape. Great to have you. And last but not least, Kartik Sikar, who will be discussing the GCP updates. Hey, Kartik, welcome back. Hello, glad to be back. Really excited to talk about new GCP updates this month. Great. And it looks like, gentlemen, we have a lot of updates to discuss. So let's jump right into them. Piri, let's start with you and let's talk about some of the improvements in SLAs from AWS. Can you take us through what the improvements are and which services are affected? All right. So several services SLA have been bumped up to 99.9%. And so this is true for a lot of the Kinesis products. So Kinesis Data Firehose, Data Streams, and Video Streams, as well as the EKS and ECR services for containerization. Amazon Cognito as well has improved to 99.9 and step functions, secret managers, and finally Amazon MQ. So quite a few services there have been pumped up. However, there are the wording around it is, is a bit special. Amazon says that they will use commercially reasonable efforts to get those SLAs. So not sure exactly what that means, but, but we can expect improvements on those services. Great. Well, I mean, it's 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 definitely good to see them making an effort, and it, it is good to see SLAs, you know, introduced for more more services. I, I'm not sure how beneficial it is in the end, but it seems like a step in, in the in the right direction. Warner, we're coming to you to talk about the query store for Azure SQL Data Warehouse moving from preview to general availability. Why don't you tell us more? So this is part of Microsoft's effort to add more goodies into Azure SQL Data Warehouse moving forward and try to make it closer or more feature parity to Azure SQL Database and SQL Server and what we expect there, right? So if you're familiar with SQL Server or Azure SQL DB, you'll know that this feature of the query store, which is basically an instrumentation feature that gathers all the stats from your queries and can show you where you see regressions in performance, right? It's been in SQL available since 2016. A lot of our clients are already using it. So now the story here is that Microsoft has implemented it for the first time in Azure SQL Data Warehouse. So we get that same experience in terms of performance troubleshooting, which I think is really, really important, obviously, as more people are adopting SQL Data Warehouse, then we need to have these type of advanced tools to analyze performance, right? I feel like before we had this query store, the process to try to debug performance in SQL Data Warehouse was a little bit more cumbersome than on regular SQL Server or Azure SQL DB because you had to hunt down the queries yourself, you had to like throw in a spreadsheet or create another database where you were gonna store this type of information yourself and keep track of your own baseline and so on, right? So all this is automated now with the release of Query Store. So you'll have views that have the full text of all the queries executed. They'll have information such as like how many times they were executed, the resources they consumed, you can 
you know, order them and group them in different ways. You can watch for their their execution plans and so on, right? And then, of course, down the line, like we always say, this is the first step into something bigger, which I assume is coming just a matter of time, is that eventually the Azure SQL Data Warehouse is going to detect regressions and fix plans automatically, right? Because SQL Server already does this now. After the release of the first release of Query Store, really was up to the user to you know, point out, oh, I, I found a regression and, and I can revert the plan. But then SQL 2017 and up now, you can actually let it automatically fall back into a plan when it detects a regression, right? So it's only a matter of time now before SQL Data Warehouse will take the same information and do the same type of automatic plan fixing, which again, we talked about this before, right? About automating all these things. Right, right, and uh, yeah, and I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take the bait there, Warner, because you know I love to talk about that. But boy, have we come so far from, you know, SQL 2000 <laughs> from a database engine perspective. Well, every perspective. Coming over to Google and GCP with Kartik, but before we go into there, I'm going to throw out a little bit of a shameless plug. You'll notice, folks, that the Google updates are a little bit lighter than usual, and that's because Google Next is coming up. So no doubt, and I don't work for Google, but no doubt they're they're holding back some of the, the great stuff because they want to release it and talk about it at Next. And if you want to meet some of us, my team, as well as Pythian, will be there in force we will have a booth, so if you want to meet us and talk about the podcast, Kartik, myself, and several other members of my team will be at our booth. Can't tell you where the booth is or, or whatnot, but we will be there in force. So do come by if you're there and say hi. If you listen to the podcast, let us know if you like it, if you have suggestions. And, of course, you know we can talk about other data and googly things as well. So would really love to see you stop by and say hi and let us know if you are a podcast listener. So. Now that I'm done with my shameless plug, Kartik, let's talk about BigQuery's Sandbox. BigQuery Sandbox is actually a pretty cool new thing that Google has released. So essentially, it is nothing but the same BigQuery, but you can actually now use and test and do all kinds of demos and hands-on labs in BigQuery without using a credit card at all. So essentially, you get the same compute power, just like paying users do, you get to run the same SQL queries over large or small data sets, use BigQuery machine learning, the new BigQuery GIS capabilities, all the other capabilities, but you do not need to use a single credit card at all in order to be able to test out, do demos, or basically essentially learn what BigQuery is all about. So it's really good for students, new developers who are coming on to the GCP and essentially the BigQuery ecosystem and other Google users who are coming in from different products that they use, like Google Analytics or some of the other products which has native BigQuery integrations in the background. So essentially now you can play around with BigQuery. Do not need to worry about credit card or what credit card you need to do use for this particular instances. Just get in, just experiment on your own and uh, so, Kardik, where, where's the catch here? There's got to be a limit somewhere. Yeah, you must have to pay for everybody's going to be running everything in the sandbox. <laughs> uh, no, yes, of course, there is there is a limit. The limit is about a terabyte per month of query capacity and about 10 gigabytes oh. of free storage. And you also have, I think, it's a 60-day retention policy for the data that you have. So after this period expires or once you have consumed all the available capacity in this credit card-free tier, then you are required to use a credit card and upgrade your account. 
but yeah. you still it's like once you like it's it, i'm not sure about this but once you actually do sign up and if it is your first time sign up on gcp so gcp does give you 300 dollars in credits as well over yeah, over a year so i'm not sure if you get. can yeah I, I think you might be able to get that but again it's it's i've not tested that out it does sound really but, good in terms like i don't probably a lot of people are not going to use it to load their own data but they can do a lot with one terabyte of data read a month using the many public data sets that are already loaded on BigQuery. Right? Yeah, do they, like do the, the, BTC, so, uh, bit, the blockchain relational schema they created with all the transactions and stuff, a lot of interesting stuff you can do there, yeah. Well, that was yeah. so that was my question. So does the, you said 10 gigabytes of free storage. So they do have a bunch of public data sets loaded. Do those count against your 10 gig of storage? Like do you have to move them into a separate bucket that counts against you? Or can you just access them from the sandbox? You can access them from the sandbox. The public data sets are accessible from most of the other places. So that's not a problem. And 10 terabytes is your own data. It does not include the public data sets. The 10, uh, the 10 terabytes, which is basically the total query volume, that includes not only your 10 gigabytes, that is your personal data, but also the public data sets in terms of total query processing. Okay. Well, that, I mean, takes away, away a lot of the excuse of, of, of knowing the technology, right? Like it's free. It's been a half an hour a day for two weeks and you'll know it well. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I love that part of the, the public cloud. Period. coming back to you, there were a couple of storage updates that you were really excited about. Do you want to walk us through them? Great. So the first one is for the Amazon Elastic file system. So Amazon EFS is the petabyte scale uh, file system that can be accessed massively by hundreds, if not thousands of instances simultaneously. And so what they've done here is that they've helped you manage your cost of usage on EFS because they can automatically do lifecycle management for you. So any files that haven't been accessed in the last 30 days can be moved to a less expensive storage tier, which is 95% cheaper. Like Glacier um, or something? Also, yeah, so 85, sorry. Um, so that's actually a really good way to, you know, lifecycle your files. The only, there's a few catches here. Oh, well, catches, not really. It can only apply to certain types of files. They have to be larger than 128 kilobytes because smaller files are more complicated for Amazon to deal with in S3. Right. So that was the first storage update. The second uh, storage update is, so we have the new Amazon FSX, which is a bit different from EFS, although quite resembling a bit, but uh, there it, this one is backed by Active Directory, is mostly meant for Microsoft instances to connect to via SMB, CIFS, and so on. So this is a new file system that has been announced at Amazon reInvent of this year and has been released very recently, and this is an upgrade to that. And so this, file system is made for machine learning or HPC workload, or basically it's a storage place where you need to play around with a lot of data on different instances at higher throughputs than EFS. And so the approach there is that when you do your meteorological predictions or whatever, your finite element analysis in the cloud, or your HPC stuff, afterwards you have your results set in Amazon FSx, but that's not the proper way for the rest of your applications to use it now that you've made that transformation. Now the idea is to move this data out into S3, into blob storage, to make that accessible by the rest of your applications in the cloud. And so this is a data transfer from FSx to S3, which is a lot faster than what it was until a few weeks ago. So that basically the copy speed out to S3 has been multiplied by two, which is really great. Yeah, that is really great. 
Cool. On the theme of cost management, Werner, coming back to you, tell us more about Azure Cost Management. So Azure Cost Management is Microsoft's next gen, let's call it experience, in terms of how you can analyze and manage the cost of your Azure subscription. And it was previously in preview only for enterprise agreements. Now it is generally available, not only for enterprise agreements, but they are making it available for pretty much everybody, adding the government cloud and also just the regular pay-as-you-go credit card type of subscription, right? So if you're familiar with the Azure portal and you have never used this preview cost management, then what you usually see is just you go into the description and then you have like a bunch of list of resources and you can use a little grid there to sort by cost or whatnot, but there's not much more than that, right? So cost management really improves the experience and really makes it, you know, a lot easier and a lot more in-depth analysis possible with your cost data. And I mean, cloud cost optimization is just really starting to pick up as a hot topic as more and more IT shops are going to be migrating to the cloud. This cloud cost optimization thing, I think it's gonna become even a full-time job for some people, to be honest, down the line. Just to give you an idea, for example, cost management now in the preview, it allows you to slice and dice your cost data it's not just like one flat grid that you can sort. You can actually add dimensions to it, such as, you know, who, like what accounts are consuming more resources or what regions are consuming more resources, what particular tags are consuming more resources and so on. And it's more expensive. You can create budgets so you can set, you know, this particular tag or this particular resource group. You can also do budget, let's say, by an account, and then you can set their limits for the month. And of course, you can also set alerts so that if somebody is approaching or has gone over their budget, then you can get an alert on it as well, right? So for a long time, Amazon has had really the best in class cost management experience. I don't think anybody can debate that just because obviously Amazon has had so many years of a head start there developing that the, the ability of cost management in AWS has been really the leader for a long time. So I think this is a good step for Microsoft in basically catching up and providing the same quality tools for custom subscription management in Azure that are really gonna, like I said, set it apart in terms of cloud cost optimization for a lot of people. That's great. I, I think this is such a great niche opportunity to innovate and develop because I think we're all interested in cost management. So I've actually thought personally a number of times about developing different products I think, though, at the same time, it's the biggest risk to be wiped out by the cloud because they see you do it really well. And they go, oh, yeah, we could do that. And a week later, they, they build it. <laughs> yeah. So it's good to have these tools because if we think about managing cost in the cloud, it's so much different from doing it on-premises, right? Like on-premises, you're not going to suddenly have 500 cores show up and plug themselves, right? But in the cloud, a developer that has a lot of leeway can suddenly boot up an HPC cluster and consume a bunch of cores and GPUs and whatnot and easily ramp up your costs or several orders of magnitude higher than you thought it was going to be that month, right? So all these things don't really exist on-premises or are not that much necessary on-premises, but are now like critical for proper cloud cost management, right? Yeah. I mean, cloud costs is a whole... Yes, you. Uh, and so I, you know, I mentioned my my product thing, but I do think that there is a good niche opportunity for cloud cost consulting as well, because what organization who's on the cloud doesn't want to control their costs? Now, 
what they don't like and, and what we can certainly help with. And, you know, professionally, I know all, all four of us do this on a regular basis. It's like you could hire a professional to tell you which machines are costing you the most money. That's not really the real fix. The real fix is to re-architect the application to take advantage of the right pass offerings or, or what have you and to get away from your traditional way of doing things. Do you guys agree? Yes, I completely agree. Apart from that, there's one more point I would like to add to cost issues. One of the things that I've seen, I've started noticing is that customers, rather than being cost effective, they want cost efficiency in the sense that they know that they are getting a lot of benefit by moving to the cloud. They realize that their operations cost and their traditional costs that were there for, for people who were there in their IT departments or, or other people, just some cost that goes into traditional on-prem hardware is really getting reduced. So essentially, the conversation has converted a little bit, in my opinion, towards what is cost efficient and not just cost reduction. So essentially, like, yes, you might be able to either reduce the cost that you are having already on-prem or maybe go up. But that's okay to go up as long as there is a tremendous business value or business capability, which is somehow quantifiable, which is demonstrable to the business. And I see that happening pretty often right now. So there are obviously cost considerations as well. But at the same time, cost efficiency has become a center play in multiple different conversations with various cloud consumers. Right. And I think there are iterations of cloud maturity and you know, one of them is probably tier one is something along the lines of, and I'm sure somebody has written about this, but I, I haven't haven't read it. But, you know, I think there's a level of like, you know, adopting the cloud, doing the business the way you do. But then the next level is properly leveraging the cloud offerings. And some aspect along the way is efficiency versus just, you know, reducing dollars spend on traditional way of doing things. Very interesting topic. We should We should actually sit down and have a dedicated entire episode to proper cost management in, in the cloud. So I think we'll I think we'll do that. We'll stick with you, Warner, with some new connectors were added to Azure Data Factory 2. Do you want to walk us through them? Yeah. So if you guys, uh, for all the listeners, if you're not familiar with Azure Data Factory, it is Microsoft's ETL and transformation platform as a service offering inside Azure. And they just keep investing more into ADF v2 now. ADF v2, like the, the name says, obviously is the second iteration. First iteration was pretty bare bones, but now it's been solidly surpassed by v2. We're to the point where a lot of people finally are using v2 as their real production ETL and transformation service inside Azure. This particular story is all about expanding ADF's capabilities. So now we have, for example, Google Cloud Storage is supported now as a source as well. We have, for example, a more streamlined experience for consuming data from RESTful endpoints. We have a connector now for connecting to MongoDB as well, whether it's real MongoDB on-premises or MongoDB running in Cosmos DB, for example, it makes no difference. You can use that as well. And also they're bringing connectors for any S3 compatible data storage. As you guys know, some of the big storage hardware vendors are now selling their SANs with S3 compatibility layers, right? So you can take your Amazon-friendly S3 code and just deploy it against, let's say, an EMC SAN kind of thing. So now for those particular types of devices, for example, as ADF already had a, a specific AWS S3 connector, now there's a general 
S3 connector that should work with any device that has an S3 compatibility layer as well. Oh, that's, that's great. So, and you know, I think intercloud connectivity is going to be a big deal over time. Uh, that's another level, I think, of maturity. So let's go ahead and connect to AWS and talk to Pirig about some of the new developer tool updates. Let's talk about Coretto. All right. So Coretto. Coretto has been announced to be GA uh, since the beginning of the month. So that's a really big thing in developer land and Java land. As you may or may not know, Oracle has decided to license uh, their JDK version starting this year. So any enterprise or any company that's running some Java applications will actually have to pay a license fee to Oracle to run JDK on their VMs and have their applications work. And so OpenJDK has been around for a very long time. However, this is AWS iteration on OpenJDK. So they've taken OpenJDK and have strengthened it, hardened it to make it more production ready. So it's been available since AWS reInvent of last year. And since then, we've seen a lot of adoption grow. The product seems very stable and equivalent to the old Sun JDK or even the OpenJDK. So that's a very good news for everyone who doesn't like giving money to Oracle. Hmm. Excellent product by AWS. Hmm. Smart move on AWS's part, for sure, and, and another shot across the bow to Oracle. Let's let's stick with you, Pirig. We have a we do actually have quite a few AWS updates this month, which is great. Let's talk about the analytics updates you were excited about. Right. So I'm I'm very fluent with Elasticsearch. I like that product very much, and I like AWS version of it. And so what they've done here is they've actually increased the node count in Elasticsearch cluster in Elasticsearch as a service on AWS. So now you can create up to 200 node cluster. And that is insane. That gives you three petabytes of storage of insanely fast SQL query and no SQL queries. That is an excellent product. I've scaled the Elasticsearch in the past quite a bit, but never to this size. I'm very curious uh, to try this out and see what kind of workloads that can insert in Elasticsearch. That's going to be interesting. They've Actually, also, Piri, be, before we move off, Piri, I, I have to ask, like, who's asking for that? What What is a real-world application for needing 200 nodes for Elasticsearch? <laughs> All right. So, well, actually, in the, in the latest news, we've actually heard of a kind of a data leak or, or something that Dow Jones has been doing in the past few days. So Dow Jones has been creating a data warehouse of people, uh, the risk, <laughs> and tried to make risk assessment on people, companies, on various things throughout our lives to be able to practice their financial management or estimates on that. So that kind of warehouse is meant for streaming data into it really quickly and to read it in real time very quickly as well to make real time is a big point there to make real-time visualization charts and, and so on of petabyte scale data. That's the use case for Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch was born out of the lead, need for logging data, logging data out of our servers or application logs. That's how Elasticsearch was born. We ship our logs, which is a tremendous amount of data to Elasticsearch for better visualization and histogram browsing of the data. Okay, so, so sorry to interrupt you. You can, you can keep, keep going with your analytics. All right. Um, and besides that, well, Elasticsearch has been upgraded to the latest version. So you can now do a rolling update of your Elasticsearch cluster just by the click of a button. In real life, if you had created your own Elasticsearch cluster, it wasn't exactly that easy. So that's a really, really good feature that AWS brings to the table. 
And now they support deployment into different AZs as well. Before it was in a single AZ, so now you have true HA support. And of course, if you do that, then you want to up your replicate count to three. Okay, okay, great. Warner, we'll come over to you and talk about almost the opposite of Elasticsearch. It looked like there were some new, fairly large machines released on Azure. Yeah, we got a new family of machines that is now generally available. These are called the LSV2 series of Azure VMs. And the the big difference in this machine family is that they come with NVMe SSD devices attached locally to these particular VMs, right? So target workloads here are big data applications, SQL or NoSQL databases, data warehousing, transactional DBs. It could be something if you're running Cassandra or Mongo, big data cluster or Redis cache in IaaS, you can use these. I'm going to assume that some of the Microsoft Pass offerings, like for example, HD Insight is probably going to start offering this particular machine type as well as part of the options of building those clusters as well because of just the capability in terms of IO from those NVMe disks is quite something. Like for example, just to give you an idea, I'm looking at the chart right now. And if you deploy the 8.0 vCPU LSV2 machine, that will give you 80 cores with 640 gigs of RAM and 10 times 1.9 terabyte NVMe disks. And that'll give you an aggregated throughput of 3.4 million IOPS and wow. 22 gigabytes per second. So, you know, there's very few workloads where that you would not be able to run this type of thing, right? The only caveat here is that the NVMe devices themselves are ephemeral. So if you stop or deallocate the VM completely, then you will lose the contents of that device, right? So some people will say like, well, then how come you're saying that they're good for databases? Well, the point obviously there would be that you wouldn't just run a single node of your database, right? You would run some sort of, let's say, like a multi-availability zone. Let's say we're running a super high uh, requirement SQL server database, for example. Well, we can put all of it on the NVMe devices and we can have you know different replicas and different availability zones so even if we did have to deallocate one VM, we would still have the other two up and running, right? Yeah. So that would be the trade-off there is that you would get really, really good performance, but you have to work around the fact that those disks are not permanent, right? They're not sitting in, in Azure permanent managed disks. They are ephemeral storage that is locally attached. But that's why you get that blazing fast performance. Right? Huh. It, it sounds super cool. I'm, I'm just... If it were my organization, I'd be super worried about the junior DBA deallocating the wrong VM. <laughs> You're in a lot well, of trouble. As long as you have replicas, it's okay. Yeah. And then people also mention, well, what happens if all the replicas like blow up at the same time? Which is it's unlikely, but let's happen. assume that happens. Well, at that point, you would need to recover from backups, right? Yeah. Just reminder, like you know, public safety announcement: like having replicas doesn't mean you don't have to take backups, right? Right. Right, yeah, because I mean, replicas also don't guard against the, the old truncate table or yeah, exactly. You know, command. Exactly. Oh, that's that's good. Uh, no cloud podcast is complete without a Kubernetes discussion. Definitely wanted to talk about the new native Spark operator for Kubernetes that Google has just released, and it's in GA right now. So there was always a thing about running Spark on Kubernetes, but if anybody has ever done it, it was really painful to configure, getting Yarn and getting all the other 
monitoring and observability functions up and running on Kubernetes for Spark workloads was really pretty painful. It was possible, but it was not trivial. So now what Google has announced is basically the Kubernetes operator for Apache Spark, also called the Spark operator, So, which basically helps you manage your Spark applications natively on Kubernetes. And then it is available through GCP Marketplace for Kubernetes. So it's essentially a custom container image, which has, I believe, Spark 2.4, and it is available within the Kubernetes Marketplace. It also can support Helm, some of the, and it is natively integrated with Stackdriver. It also has extensions for Prometheus, and it also allows for PySpark and RSpark applications. And all of these are custom tailored and custom built in order to have that native level of support that Kubernetes can provide. It also has a command line tool called SparkCuttle, which is similar to KubeCuttle, which automatically detects applications dependency on user's client machine and uploads all of that to a cloud storage bucket and then does all kinds of fancy things. And then basically, it greatly simplifies the use of client local application dependencies on the Kubernetes environment. So essentially, it is a pretty full offering, and I'm very certain of the fact that there is going to be a lot more evolution of this particular piece of technology, especially given that Databricks is definitely getting a lot of attention these days, and Databricks is currently not officially supported on GCP. So this is one way of actually running some kind of Databricks containers on the GCP ecosystem. I'm not exactly, it's it's definitely not a one-to-one parity at this point of time, but I'm just definitely sure that once the evolution of this particular thing happens a little bit further, especially running and getting Spark running on Kubernetes in a more mature fashion, it totally brings in the whole open source Spark on Kubernetes aspects rather than being dependent on a specific vendor to provide native Spark support on multiple different container platforms. So there is definitely a lot of traction going on in this front and Google in its continuous evolution in terms of trying to make data and analytics products much better and more open source. It's no surprise that that this came. (laughs) It's just a surprise that it came late. Yeah, yeah. I'm hearing a lot of hype about Azure Databricks and Databricks in general as well. So that's that's great news. Pirik, we're coming back to you. It looks like Azure was not the only one to release some serious processing capability. Let's talk about the bare metal instances. Right. So we finally get to see what the bare metal instances are. So they've been announced at AWS reInvent, and they've actually been a GA earlier this week. So you can now spin up uh, bare metal, real bare metal instances in AWS, which is uh, pretty cool. And those are actually fairly beefy. So we have five instance types. They're called M5.metal. So these are all going to be called .metal to make difference from the other ones. M5, M5D, R5, R5D, and Z1D. And so these are all fairly beefy machines. They come with 96 CPUs from starting at 384 gigabytes of memory. And you can as well have um, NVMe SSDs, if you wish, on the D instance types. The bandwidth is very high on these, 14 gigabits to EBS and 25 gigabits of network throughput. So these are very beefy. So the M5 instances are designed for general purpose workloads such as web and application servers, gaming servers, caching fleets and so on. But to be honest with you, these are to move like older workloads. I don't think like in your newer applications would be designed to run on such beefy um, solutions, but this allows customers to move 
from on-premise to the cloud, some older, very beefy workloads. So a very interesting solution there by, by AWS. The R5 instance types, those are, are more high performance. They have more memory than the M5s. So they're meant to be more for uh, memory intensive applications. And they also have the excellent NVMe um, SSD storage. Hmm. That's cool. And I had been wondering what the use case was for this. And I'm really intrigued with your comment, not to detract and take us too far down a rabbit hole, but your comment, you know, this serious performance power was designed for older workloads is such an interesting thing to say, given <laughs> that workloads haven't gone down. Like the uh, the amount of processing power isn't isn't going down. You know, look at Elasticsearch's scale, look at some of the Azure and, and Google changes. But you're not saying those are, for, you know, workloads have it work hasn't gone down. It's actually gone up. But we need the bare metal raw power to process the old stuff that hasn't been refactored to properly take advantage of the cloud. Like that is such an interesting comment. And if your organization hasn't like is still doing lift and shifts and stuff, pay attention to that because that costs. I'm sure they're not the cheap instances, right, Perry? Oh, no, those are some of the priciest solutions. Of course. US. Of course. Uh, that's that's just a fascinating comment. I, I love it. Let's talk and, about... Oh, go ahead, please. Oh, yeah. To add to that, it was just like the na whole nature of designing applications has changed. Earlier, we would focus a lot on vertical scaling. And right now, the whole scaling parameters are mostly around horizontal scaling. So essentially, a larger workload can run in smaller chunks now. But previously, you had to really beef up vertically in order to be able to run more workloads or more horsepower on your application. So it's just the dynamic nature of the whole technology industry. It's just yeah. a different Well, platform. database servers are huge offenders of that, right? Because yeah. people still today have a lot of difficulties in trying to vertically scale their database systems as opposed to just buying a bigger box, right? Like yeah, it's yeah. for a lot of people, it's just so much easier to buy a bigger box. But we have found at least for at least, let's say some of our own top performing OLTP clients, eventually most of them hit a wall in terms of vertically scaling. And that's where things like Amazon's Aurora, you know, super big push for uh, read-only scalability, at least for databases has been very successful and replicated by, you know, SQL servers. The same now with read-only secondary replicas, Azure SQL DB offering the same as well, right? Yep. So there's yeah. a big push now, even for OLTP, to try to offload most read capability to multiple machines. Yeah, yeah but it's if a you, whole... Just what I add to Werner's thing, if you think about the work involved in creating read-only replicas on, on any of the physical databases, it's a very cumbersome way to, to scale horizontally as compared to some of the cloud native options. I'm sorry, Kartik, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that, again, it comes down to the architectural principles and what your application workload really is. If your application does not need an ACID support or ACID compliant database and can work with base database with eventual consistency, you can definitely scale horizontally as much as you want. But you have to have that application definition in terms of what exactly it is doing, what is the business capability required, and does it really need ACID compliance? And if you are able to answer those questions, then you'll be kind of able to understand if you can do horizontal or vertical scalability. Yeah, and if it's partition friendly as well, right? Because yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, any NoSQL database that you distribute, as long as it's partition friendly, right? If you can't find a proper way to partition it and you're just gonna be querying cross nodes all the time, you're gonna get worse performance than if you were just to buy a big beefy box. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Kartik, you just sent a shudder through my spine as you talked about not having acid compliance. I just, I can't, can't even, 
can't compute. I still struggle well, with you, the you idea. Well, of... you can do ACID as long as it's properly partitioned, right? Like if you if you run, let's say, Spanner or Cosmos or Cassandra or Mongo or anything, as long as you stay within one partition, you can do transactions, right? The problem is when you start doing it cross partitions, and many of these products now do support cross partition transactions, but your performance goes off the deep end when you do that, right? Because the whole point of these systems is that once you add these operations across nodes, it's more expensive than, than before, right, obviously. So if you run uh, or if you design a NoSQL system with the idea that you're going to be do cross-node transactions all the time, you're going to get way worse performance than if you were just to run SQL or, or, or Oracle instead, right? Right. Absolutely. And, and that is why a lot of like application design that I've seen recently, they have clear partitions in terms of not, this is not data partitions, but clear logical partitions in application mm -hmm. functionality in terms of which functionality of the application requires asset, which part of the application does not require asset. So we've started seeing that it's only about in most applications, about five to 10% really required asset and the rest do not. So basically, if you optimize for that, then you can use a combination of both the tools and then be able to maximize your performance and cost and basically storage everything pretty effectively. But you need to get to that level of abstraction in order to determine which transaction really needs to be an asset transaction or not. So and then be able to take the call. Right. You know what? I'm taking notes as we're going here, guys. I like I've you've banged out about a dozen great podcast topics. So I, I think we'll do an entire episode on determining what types of transactions uh, require asset and, and what don't from a data perspective. A, a fascinating talk. I, I want to keep us moving because there are a lot of other updates to discuss. But, you know, I could easily talk about that one for an hour. Warner, we'll come back to you and talk about anomaly detection. So anomaly detection is now a new feature in Stream Analytics. So Stream Analytics is the built-in pass service in Azure for running queries on data on the fly and then moving them down a pipeline or delivering those results directly to a visualization service. So for example, I'll give you an idea, this is a a demo that I usually run in conferences is I, I have a machine that has this multi-threaded application simulating sensor data that is being sent to the cloud, right? So if let's say you are, you know, you have a sensor that's picking up temperature once every few seconds or so, usually you don't really need to give your human operators that level of granularity because they'll just go insane with the amount of, let's say, movement in that such a small time frame, right? So you could use something like stream analytics to capture that streaming data and then aggregate it over a window of time that is more reasonable, let's say a minute or something like that. You can compute averages, maxes, you can do more uh, intelligent compute if you need to with JavaScript, all done automatically by the service for you. The service automatically will partition the stream in windows of time. It can partition the stream in windows of, of any column that you give it. So let's say I could partition the stream by devices and so on. So this new capability is really interesting because now anomaly detection has been built in core into stream analytics so that you don't really have to do anything in terms of training a model. So before it would be like, let's say for my example of the sensor temperature, if I wanted to add some sort of, oh, I want to have on the fly, see if this sensor is just running too hot, then I would need to go out and train a model on a different service, such as, let's say, you know, Azure Machine Learning Services, for example, and then plug in that 
model into stream analytics and then stream analytics could use it to alert me so instead of doing that now it is built into stream analytics native so that there's just a function so i can do something like select from the stream and use the function saying like train over two minutes and then alert on low medium or high sensitivity on a couple of different conditions or very common conditions used in terms of on time series, for example, for spiking up or spiking down, or if the stream analytics detects a longer term decrease or increase in the values that are being read. And the nice thing about this, of course, is that you don't have to manually train anything. You just provide a training window as part of the function parameters, and stream analytics starts to do that on the background for you, and then automatically also it starts to tell you when it goes up or down based on the data that is being read on the stream. So once again, another topic that you and I have discussed a lot of times, Chris, is how the barrier of entry for adding machine learning and AI capabilities to solutions, it just continues to get lower and lower, right? This is to the point where now this is, I don't need to know like, you know, anything about how this is done under the covers. I just have to call this function and it automatically trains the model for me and it'll automatically tell me when it's spiking up or spiking down, right? There's very little that I actually have to do or have to even know in terms of ML or AI to get this working. Right, yes. And I think anomaly detection or outlier detection is one of the easiest, and I'm probably dumbing this down a little bit, but one of the maybe one of the most helpful is a better word, applications of machine learning like if you read any of the studies about radiologists looking for you know tumors in lungs and brains and what have you and you know the effect of like after the what they find after lunch versus in the morning and things like that like machine learning can augment this and in such a great way for us humans because we're actually kind of bad at it as we you know as the day goes on and we start thinking about our kids or football or you know what we're having for dinner or our date or what have you it's such a great tool to augment, not not take our jobs, but augment the quality of some of that that work. So I, I just fascinated by that, whether it's applied to security, health, or almost any other topic. Let's talk some more about databases and Redshift implemented Analyze period. Why don't you take us into what is Analyze and why is it important that, that it's run automatically now? Okay, so Analyze is actually uh, performance improving computation that's done on your Amazon Redshift. And so before it was a task that you had to run on your own periodically or, or whenever it made sense, whenever you made updates. And it was quite cumbersome to implement in your pipelines of data flowing to Redshift. And so now this is all automatic. It's something that you can forget about. You don't have to take care of it anymore. It's always run intelligently in the background. It doesn't like do dumb updates of everything all the time. It actually knows what has been recently updated and only analyzes what hasn't been. And so, yeah, pretty cool. I think it's a really good feature of, of AWS. It was missing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Seems, seems like a no-brainer to me. And keep going with Python shell jobs in Glue? Right. So, well, this one is just an update for AWS Glue where it now supports Python SDK. I thought it was worth mentioning, but not, nothing too impressive on, on that. Okay, good stuff. Now, let's be careful not to take too much time on this one, but I, I think it's another whole episode. But Kartek, let's talk about the recent announcement of the Google's intention to acquire Aluma. Why is that significant? What does that mean to us? Yes, we can definitely go through a lot of these discussions. But yes, Google has just announced the intent to 
acquire Aluma, which is another data movement, data migration, ETL tool. And it kind of has to fit in within the whole Google's ecosystem of different acquisitions that it has made recently, including Kask, which produced uh, CDAP, uh, which is another uh, data curation, data migration tool, which was more catered towards Hadoop and open source workloads. Now, Aluma was a little bit more on the BigQuery side, on cloud workloads and different data types on more user-friendly ETLs as well. So essentially, it will be very interesting to see as to what the positioning is from Google as to how do they intend to integrate the overall data landscape together. Their push definitely is to make sure that the old generation of iPaaS and the integration platform as a service and all of that is completely hosted within the Google ecosystem so that you don't have to go to a net new vendor in order to get any other ETL tool, any other ETL frameworks that might be required in order to do data transformation and data movement within the Google and GCP ecosystem. You still might need a few additional tools for filling some of the gaps, but the idea is to have a complete and comprehensive ecosystem for the entire process. They have a good data warehouse in terms of BigQuery. They have multiple different processing pipelines with Dataproc, Dataflow. They have PubSub, they have storage, they have Bigtable, but there were definitely things lacking which were kind of putting things together. There was Cloud Composer, which got which came in in order to orchestrate everything together, but they still needed that uh, enterprise customers to move with the traditional ETL-type mechanisms onto GCP. And this is where Aluma really fits in. Cask also fits in up to a large extent, especially in terms of data curation and all of the other good things as well. It will be very interesting to see it's still very early days in terms of what Aluma means for GCP. And we definitely have to wait and see as to how Google's positioning and best practices around leveraging Aluma along with Cask, along with all the other fantastic uh, GCP data products, how to use them together in the most effective fashion. So we'll be very interested to see that and we'll definitely keep you posted on what's happening on that front. Yeah, as they as they update, I, I think that's a great one to kind of continue to cover. So let's let's Warner, let's come back to you and wrap the Azure updates with the latest updates to Azure Monitor. So here we have some, I guess it's kind of related to what we just talked about, uh, about stream analytics, because now the big update to Azure Monitor is, and it's something that is going to be really familiar for us people in the managed services industry, is that Microsoft is introducing the idea of these alerts that are automatically trained to have dynamic thresholds so that you can do your monitoring at scale without having to set static number values to your all your alerting configuration right so the classic you know every time that the cpu goes over 80 percent kind of thing send me an alert you and i have seen you know the workloads where the cpu never goes under 80 percent right and it just becomes a matter of like it's that's just the way it is and you can try to optimize and whatnot but it just consumes more as the client onboards more load and whatnot right so the whole point there being is that you always have to be playing around with these thresholds and at scale when you're dealing with hundreds and and possibly thousands of applications and databases and all sorts of different resources it becomes really hard to properly set the right value and threshold for all of these things, right? So this new capability of dynamic thresholds is very similar to what I just discussed with Stream Analytics, except that it's automatically going to be done by Azure Monitor and it's going to be able to be built into your alerts so that 
you just basically say, I want to get alerts on low, medium, or high sensitivity, and you let the service run, and that's it, right? The service will do its own training of what means low, medium, or high sensitivity for your particular workload, and then it's going to send you alerts without you having to set any sort of threshold. And also, if, for example, you get one alert and it turns out that you don't believe it's it's a big deal or whatnot, then you can actually tell the service so that it also trains based on, on your feedback as well. And you don't have to, again, like set the number, the exact value if you don't want to. You can just let the service then recalibrate and come up with a new threshold that applies for you. Right? Oh, so I great. think it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting to see if you know if I have, like I said, hundreds of resources, is it feasible to just not set any thresholds at all and let all of this be done automatically, right? I would like to see how that would compare to let's say taking a, a quote unquote expert and let the expert set all the thresholds and see see who does the best, right, in terms of how much noise is generated and how much real actual incidents or anomalies get captured, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, you and I both, you know, have worked together for a long time, over 10 years, actually, Warner. And, you know, so much of our early careers, we're getting woken up in the night to readjust the monitoring alert threshold from 75 to 82 and going back Mm -hmm. to bed, right? Like, awesome. Yeah, the classic weekend maintenance that just doesn't fit to the rest of the workload for the rest of the week, right? Exactly, exactly. And so let's go ahead and wrap up some of the AWS updates with you, Pirig. I'm a big fan of management and governance. Why don't you take us through the Trusted Advisor updates? Right. So Trusted Advisor actually got several updates to it in the past weeks. Some of them I find not too important, but there's two of them that I find quite important because they hint on what could be coming next. So the first ones that I find, okay, they're there, good. Uh, DynamoDB and Route 53, we get actually some recommendations on DynamoDB read capacity, on write capacity, on Route 53 hosted zones as well. So if your utilization of Route 53 grows too high, you get some recommendations to spread your zones out and so on. So those are, are pretty basic. The new ones, though, that I find a bit interesting are actually software AWS recommendations. So AWS can actually hook into your Windows running instances and make driver updates recommendations. So I can see there that they've built a framework to do very interesting things. They might have started by not the most interesting to me as driver updates on Windows. So these are meant for the ENA drivers or NVMe drivers on AWS, but you could imagine pretty much anything coming up now that they have this framework there. It could be like making hardening recommendations to your operating system, to your Linux operating system. They could go into even more depth, such as recommending Apache tuning or Nginx tuning. You can think of anything there. So I'm very curious to see what's going to come up next. Yeah, well, a great realm of possibilities, right? It'll start with human-approved recommendations that very quickly matures into, you know, it just happens, and maybe humans say no, otherwise it happens, and then humans don't even look at it anymore because they're because it's reliable. So that's that's fantastic. Although it's of course it pains me a little bit to watch a little bit of my early career go away, but I mean it's not like it was exciting work after a couple months, right, gentlemen? So that's the updates as we saw them for this episode, folks. There's uh, there are actually a few more. There was both the clouds were really busy this quarter, but we'll move on to our cloud age productivity tip. 
Today, it's about going back to basics. I've made a number of changes personally, and I wanted to give them as the tip, but go back to basics, folks. This isn't about notifications or software. This is about just get away from the computer. I've been experimenting with changing of health as well as adding more time away from the computer, and it's really helped. So, you know, get away from the computer. Doing push-ups between meetings has, has been a big one for me, a little bit of meditation and that sort of thing. And I've found my productivity and my creativity have skyrocketed. Guys, I want to turn it over to you. Are you doing any of these things? What are your thoughts? My go-to is usually to hit the gym. I, I do CrossFit here in, in Ottawa, and I find the experience is it's good to clear your mind for a little while. My wife is, is a yoga teacher, so that also helps on that front. I find that either one of those, if you have like high impact, but if you don't like high impact, even just like an hour of yoga can be really good for the, you know, refresh yourself. Yeah, yeah. And how about you guys? Do anything? <laughs> On my end, no, I don't do, I know I don't do enough. I need to do more, but I, I try to pace at least. I, I walk when I'm in meetings that I don't need to be on, on a video for. So I have my, my headset and I, I walk around in my workspace. Mm -hmm. Actually mm -hmm. do a little bit of moving, but it, it needs to improve. And, yep. and Karnik, anything? Yeah, I, I pace all the time. So it makes me very difficult. Sometimes I get very stuck while sitting in one place. So definitely when uh, when I'm taking a meeting where I do not have to be on video, I do try to walk around. And then I have two dogs. So they love it when I get stressed and I have to take them out for a walk around the park. Uh, that happens at least three or four times a day. So they are extremely spoiled. That works out for me as well. Yeah. 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 I, I've just found that, you know, including these, and they're very basic things that we're told from, you know, as children that we somehow conveniently forget as busy adults. And uh, it, it's, it's just helped, you know, it helps immensely to remember to yeah. get up and move your body. Having um, dogs is a great way to encourage yourself to get out and walk because yep. the dog will be relentless, right? You, at some point, you're just like, yes, okay, fine, I'm going to take you out, right? So it is a, yeah, I find it's, it's very motivating. Plus, you, sometimes people are like, well, I don't have anybody to walk with. Well, the dog is, is good company, right? So yeah. it's, as long as you don't live somewhere super cold where some days you're just not going to be able to get a walk in like Canada, obviously. <laughs> but but even uh, you know, if, if it's just like minus five Celsius or something like that, it's still pretty comfortable for most dogs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by telling a friend where to find us or writing a short, honest review of the podcast. Thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.